coming up. The problem with atheism is it cuts down on your religious experiences. Is it possible to lead a life of faith and reason? There's a line in my fa one of my favorite Woody Allen movies, Crimes and Misdemeanors, in which someone says of a very religious man, Saul's kind of faith is a gift. It's like a, an ear for music or the talent to draw. He believes and you can use logic on him all day long and he still believes. Is belief in God irrational? Believing in and believing that God exists are quite different things. Our guest is Howard Wettstein, author of The Significance of Religious Experience. When you're feeling awe, there's a sense of elevation, but there's also a sense of being humbled. Faith, reason, and the art of living. I don't expect answers, but when something awful happens, if I can feel God's hand on my shoulder, that's something important. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stanford University campus. This program is part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. Our thinking originates not far away, across the quad at Philosopher's Corner. That's where Ken and I both teach philosophy. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're philosophizing about faith, reason, and the art of living. Ken, religion offers us a comforting and inspiring vision of human existence. A loving and merciful God created the universe. He's in charge, and he's got a plan, not just for the universe as a whole, but for me, little old me. And don't worry, Ken, he's got one for you, too. John, I have a huge problem with religion, though. Religious belief strikes me as almost completely irrational. And taking religious doctrines and tradition as your guide seemed to be no better than taking illusion and fairy tales as your guide. Well, I find your hostility to religion just a little surprising. I mean, you went to Notre Dame. That's a pretty religious place. You grew up in a devoutly religious family. I mean, what happened? I'm not hostile to religion. I'm not, I'm not at all. I don't begrudge anybody their faith. I, I admire many religious people and the lives they leave. Actually, part of me even envies them. I sometimes wish that I could believe too. But, but I, I just can't make myself do it, John. I, not, not anymore. Well, well, you sound a bit nostalgic for your lost belief, Ken. It's not nostalgia, not exactly. It's what you said earlier. Religion offers us a world suffused with meaning, purpose, and love. What does atheism offer us? An uncaring universe devoid of spirit? Devoid of transcendence? Where's the comfort in that? Well, now you sound a lot like Kierkegaard. He says if there were no eternal consciousness in man, if at the foundation of all there lay only nature, a wild, seething power, producing everything, everything that is great and everything that is insignificant, what would then life be but despair? How empty then and comfortless life would be. That's what you sound like. You really believe that? You really think life without religion is empty and devoid of comfort? Uh, I, I'm torn. Part of me thinks, what good is the truth if it just leaves you debilitated and depressed? But, but another part of me thinks, 
What good are inspiring stories based on nothing but illusion and wishful thinking? Well, I think you're being too hard on religion, and as a result, too hard on yourself. You don't have to believe absolutely everything religion teaches you. I mean, nobody does. A Christian, for example, doesn't have to believe that God literally created the world in seven days. You want a believable religion? Do what everybody else does. Start with whatever in your religion you find most palatable and appealing. Take out the bad stuff, leave in the good stuff, and you've got yourself a perfectly fine religion. I don't care what religion you start with, John, because whatever, once you set aside the mythology, the bad history, the pseudoscience, you're still going to be left with some tortured theology or some murky metaphysics. I can't believe any of that stuff either. Maybe you're too focused on what your head tells you, and you should listen more to your heart desires. If infinite happiness is at stake, like Kierkegaard thought, and wholehearted belief is the only way to get it, just do what Kierkegaard and also Pascal recommended. Take a leap of faith. Let your will take you where your reason won't go. Oh, that would be like, like expecting to win the lottery without ever buying a ticket. Uh, I don't get the analogy. Look, winning this lottery, your lottery, is achieving infinite happiness, eternal salvation, all that jazz. But the ticket is wholehearted, unquestioning faith. But, but I can't buy that ticket because I'm just not willing to surrender reason to purchase faith. Well, maybe your best bet is just to pretend. Oh, come on, pretend? Come no, on. no, I'm, I'm serious here. Think about numbers. Some philosophers believe that numbers aren't real. They're not in some platonic heaven. They're not objects really at all. They don't know what they are. But that doesn't stop them from doing math. Why not do the same with religion? Reject the metaphysics but accept the practice. Uh, yeah, philosophers call that kind of view uh, about numbers fictionalism, but why should I be a fictionalist about religion and God of all things? So you can have your cake, be religious, and eat it too. If you act as if there's a God, you get the benefits of being religious without actually believing a word of it. Oh, but that's just bad faith. What good is that going to do me? Does a pretend God answer pretend prayers? Well, I'm kind of running out of ideas here, Ken. Um, but I, I know someone who might have an additional angle. That would be Howard Wettstein. Like you, he rejects religious belief, pretty much. Unlike you, he's managed to find a way to remain deeply and sincerely religious. Oh, come on. How can that be? Well, he focuses on religious practice rather than on religious belief. Howard thinks that religion is rooted in a visceral sense of awe. Religious practices for him are just ways of channeling, increasing, and celebrating that feeling of awe. And get this, he doesn't think those practices require belief in either tortured theology or murky metaphysics. Well, gee, I, I, I'm eager to hear from this Howie then. Well, we will. But first, to help us set the stage for our awe-inspired guest, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to talk to several religious leaders about why people of faith sometimes lose that faith. She files this report. My name is Andrew Danjo White. I am an Episcopal priest. My name is Rabbi Susan Goldberg. My name is Reverend Daniel Buford. I'm the director of the Prophetic Justice Ministry at the Allen Temple Baptist Church. My name is Susan O'Connell. I'm the president of San Francisco Zen Center. I'm also a Zen priest. My name is Father Bertie Pearson, and I'm the priest at San Francisco de Assis, which is an Episcopal church in Austin, Texas. 
I spoke to leaders across a range of denominations about why people lose their faith. I always assumed it would be a dramatic event that would make a person stop believing in God, but Father Andrew Danjo White of Wayne County in Western New York says it's usually much more mundane. You know, they are volunteering at the church and helping out with different things and showing up on Sundays, and then all of a sudden they wake up one morning and realize that it's all kind of hollow to them. Sometimes, he says, people grow up, but their faith stays childish. They try to hold on to something they heard decades ago in Sunday school. This idea that, you know, uh, God loves you and, and won't let anything bad ever happen to you um, as long as you're a good person. That's the faith that people often lose. And I think that's, that's an okay faith to lose as long as it's replaced by something deeper, something that really does comprehend the realities of, of our world. And I often tell people, you know, the God that you don't believe in is the God that I don't believe in either. Rabbi Susan Goldberg of Temple Beth Israel in Los Angeles says many people think of God as a puppet master, an old guy with a beard on a cloud. And when they say they don't believe in God anymore, what they mean is they're angry at God. What is it that you're not believing in? What are you angry about? Oh, you're, you're in terrible pain. Well, there's a place for the divine to give comfort when we mourn. There's a Jewish prayer called the Kaddish that's said after someone dies, and it requires a minion that is at least 10 adults. So grief work is done in a group. And then it sort of loosens, the anger loosens up, and then as the community steps in to support someone, that to me is the experience of God, is something different than the man on the cloud. There's a scripture in the book of Ephesians that says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Reverend Daniel Buford preaches at Allen Temple Baptist Church in Oakland, California. His parish is known for high rates of unemployment, violence, and incarceration. When someone you love is murdered, he says it can be hard not to lose faith. It's the powers and the principalities that allow guns to flow rampant in our community and the uh, carnage that accompanies those guns. How is it that our teenagers are getting a hold of military assault weapons like the AR-15 and the Uzi? It's faith not in some Care Bear-style afterlife where everything's just kind of like warm and sappy or something. Over in Austin, Texas, Father Bertie Pearson says there's a popular misconception that faith gives you a set of easy answers. When someone comes to him struggling because they don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation of Jesus, Father Bertie doesn't try to convince them that they should. I wouldn't say, you just gotta hang in there and you gotta keep believing. I would say, that's great, because doubt is an integral part of faith. If someone were to come to me as a practice leader and say, I've lost my faith, I would ask them what their expectations were. Zen priest Susan O'Connell says people often come to the San Francisco Zen Center because the religion they were raised with, or psychotherapy, just wasn't cutting it anymore. O'Connell should know. In the 1990s, she went through a succession of tragedies. Her mother died, she lost her business, then she got breast cancer. So she tried Zen Buddhism. I felt held. I felt like I could break down and weep. I remember I curled up in, on the floor of the office that I was in at one point, just in the fetal position, and just started to grieve. Inside the Zen Center, O'Connell found refuge, and she found her faith. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Thanks, Caitlin, for that interesting piece about people losing their faith. If you're losing your faith, Philosophy Talk is here to help.
I'm John Perry, along with my fellow philosopher at Stanford, Ken Taylor, and we're coming to you from the Stanford campus, part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. Our guest today is a professor of philosophy from the University of California, Riverside. He's author of The Significance of Religious Experience. Please welcome to the Philosophy Talk stage, Howard Wetstein. Howie, you and I have been friends for maybe, I don't know, 35 years. When I first got to know you, you had been very religious. You had attended a yeshiva, a, a, a Jewish seminary. But when I met you, you were more caught up in the philosophy of language than in religion or its philosophy. All your Talmudic energies were focused on language and its philosophy. What led you back to religion? Part of it was disenchantment with academia. I had thought that philosophy would um, be as spiritually rich in a certain way as was Talmud. Talmud is focused on legal questions and philosophy is focused on the deepest questions. So that was one dimension and uh, somehow it was disappointing and my department was um, troubled and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a placid existence. The other thing is that I was in my mid-40s and I had recently, first, for the first time in my life, been able to read poetry. And it opened up a lot of things to me that were not open, open before. And then my mother died, and, uh, which was a terrible kind of thing, and I was looking for something. And uh, then there was a conference in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv in honor of our friend David Kaplan. And uh, I didn't really want to go because I had issues with the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. But it was a chance to bring the family to Israel for the first time, and uh, it was powerful. I got off the plane, and I met a customs agent who said to me, Shabbat Shalom, because it was Friday, late Friday afternoon. And she said that, and completely out of the blue, I felt myself crying. And I thought, this is what Michael Corleone must have felt when he first set foot in Sicily. <laughs> so you had a kind of homecoming back to it, religion. It was a kind of homecoming. So now, in, in your book, The Significance of Religious Experience, a, a wonderful book, you say that awe, awe of heaven and awe of God, that, that that feeling, if it's right to call it a feeling, that that attitude is more basic to the re religious life than belief. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what, what you mean by awe and, and why you think it's so basic? I mean, it took you a whole book to do it, but I'll give you a couple minutes. <laughs> I was visiting here at Stanford in the early 80s, and uh, we went during Christmas season to hear Handel's Messiah. It was the first time I ever heard it, and it was unbelievably powerful. Uh, I had never heard it before, as I say, and I said to my wife, the problem with atheism is it cuts down on your religious experiences. <laughs> um, so by awe, I mean what we feel when we look at the Grand Canyon, when we hear music, when we, when we witness childbirth, when we watch the growth of our kids and grandkids, um, but also uh, smaller things and bigger things, and they seem to me continuous. But you think this feeling, right, this feeling of grandeur and all that is at the basis of religion, not belief, not theory, but just this feeling, is that right? Not theory. Uh, f feeling means like a sensation, it's not like that. So I have a paper in the book in which I talk about awe, and I say that it seems to me to have two kinds of um, aspects. 
when you're feeling awe, there's a sense of elevation, but there's also a sense of being humbled. And I don't mean being humiliated, I mean being humbled, as if you put your eyes down. And uh, so, so feeling doesn't mean it has no cognitive element, but it means it's not doxastic in the philosophical we'll, sense. It's we'll, not about belief. We'll have to dig in deeper to just what this means in a bit. This is Philosophy Talk coming to you from the Stanford campus. We're talking about faith, reason, and the art of living with Howard Wettstein, author of The Significance of Religious Experience. Can you be a non-hypocritical, practicing Jew, Christian, or Muslim without believing literally and wholeheartedly in a God, a loving and merciful creator? God and all, along with questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. That's all there is. Thanks to our live musical guest, the Playtones, for that cheerful ditty. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Our guest is Howard Wettstein from UC Riverside, and we're talking about faith, reason, and the art of living. Can you have a good life without religion? Can you be religious without belief? Join the discussion by stepping up to one of the microphones at either side of the stage. So, Howard, uh, you, you are in awe of this big, mindless, natural world. And you like being part of a, a community of religious believers. But I'm going to put it to you, because you said belief, awe, not belief. Do you believe in God? So, I, I certainly do, but believing in and believing that God exists are quite different things. Well, that's an interesting distinction. Help me understand that distinction. Sure. Um, it comes as a shock to students when I say that uh, the concept of belief in the sense that philosophers and other people use it, meaning belief that a certain fact oh. is a fact, that that concept is not in the Bible, and that there's, in the Hebrew Bible at least, and in the, in the early parts of the, of the New Testament as well. There's no way to say in biblical Hebrew, in a natural idiom, that she's a believer. You can say she stands in awe of heaven, right? Belief, there's, a, there's a Hebrew term, emunah, which is sometimes translated as belief, but it means something closer to our faith. Okay, wait a minute, let's slow down here, okay. I mean, there's an ordinary distinction that's true when I say, I believe in Howie. Right. That's a way of saying, I, I trust in Howie, I have great confidence in Howie. Uh, that's different from, I believe that Howie is such and such. Okay, so, do you believe that God exists? <laughs> no, but it's a long story. <laughs> Give me the Cliff Notes version. The Cliff Notes version go like this. Um, God is as much a part of my life as the weather. I don't know if the weather exists exactly, if that's the right way to describe it. Uh, Richard Feynman, the famous physicist and mathematician, said that he, uh, he lives among the numbers. He doesn't just prove theorems about them. He's kind of intimate with them. And I knew a rabbi in Jerusalem, who was a friend of mine, who was intimate with God in that sort of way. But both the rabbi and Richard Feynman were skeptical about the philosophical question. Oh. In other words, if you asked Feynman, are numbers real? He'd say, of course, what are you talking about? So let me ask you, so I had this 
thing where I was trying to believe and I couldn't bring myself to believe. And John made a suggestion to me in the beginning of the show, be a fictionalist. <laughs> Pretend to believe. You get all the benefits of, and act as if there is a God. Is that what you're doing? You're acting as if there is a God, but you don't really believe that there is a God? I hope not. I hope not. Pascal says you should do that, right? If you're having trouble, you think the wager is a winner, mm-hmm. but you're having trouble actually believing. So what you do is you join the community and you hang around and maybe it'll turn out good for you. Eventually it'll wear, yeah, you know, you just get... So how is what you want to recommend to us different than that? Well, uh, let me finish where, where, okay. I, where I was. Okay. So Feynman is skeptical of these philosophical questions of do the numbers exist in what realm, what kind of thing are we talking about? But their reality is a part of his world. I feel that way about God. I don't know if existence is the right idea. I suspect it isn't the right idea. It makes God just a thing, like the tables and the chairs and me and you, that are parts of the world. I don't think he's part of the world in that kind of way. I don't think he's part of another world, some supernatural world, because I don't know what I'm talking about then. So, I mean, I don't remember all my catechism, but I, I, <laughs> I had to say I believe in, you know, uh, one God, almighty, uh, maker of heaven and earth, judge the quick and the dead, et cetera, so forth and so on. Could you say that? I mean, yeah, of course, since it's a Catholic catechism, I don't suppose you would, but mm-hmm. I mean, the Jewish part of it, I mean, the, uh, <laughs> I, I, what part is that? <laughs> well, what God I, I know there were a lot, a, a lot of mistranslations when the Jews went from the Latin Old Testament back into the Hebrew version, but <laughs> that's a joke. I got it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible, the old, we call right. it the Old Testament, a lot right. of things going on there. Right. You know, there's the God that talks to Moses and gives him, uh, do you think those events happened? Start with the Garden of Eden. So on some views, one yeah. must believe that there was such a place and this happened and had consequences. Do you believe that? No, I mean, no, I think no. it's a parable. I think it says something deep and important about. Okay. I think a lot of the things in the Bible, it's very hard to know what's historical fact and what isn't. If you could convince me that, I don't know, something the Bible says really never happened, it wouldn't shake my faith at all. Okay. okay. So now, because I'm more interested in the meaning and. But yeah. the, the meaning, but what, what, what do you mean by the meaning? So you. You think these are parables and stories that are, one might say, well, we don't have to take them literally, but they're parables and stories that are supposed to explain to us something about God. Yeah. So do you believe in that object that parables and stories are, is that an object? Believing in, that's the, the old story, right? Believing in is very different than believing certain propositions. Um, you know, in great literature, fictional literature, contains deep truths that are not articulated. Often the sentences are false mm-hmm. one by one, but somehow you read that book and you think, God, there's a, there are deep truths here. I think that about this. That doesn't mean I think all those stories are just mythology. Some of them are true, I'm sure. There's a lot of history in the Bible. I couldn't testify to which pieces are which. Okay, but the, the deep truths are what is powerful for me. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about faith, reason, and the art of living in front of a live audience at Stanford University. We've got questions from that live audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Hi, this is uh, Nate from San Francisco. Um, I was thinking earlier about the uh, concept of God, and uh, what I came to was this. Uh, The concept of God stretches the imagination 
more than any other. I wonder if you had any comments on uh, the imagination and God and God being uh, sort of the concept that stretches it more than any other concept you can conceive of. That's a good question. I appreciate it. I, um, the standard way of thinking about it is God is a being with these properties. And you, you fill in the properties, the omni properties, you know, omniscient and omnipotent and so on. If you look at the Bible, you can't find any of those pretty much. And certainly the, the Old Testament, you just don't find those things. He's not perfect in any of those ways. In Jewish religion, it's kind of something that happens over time and a product of medieval philosophy. Okay, so I'm not thinking God is a being with these properties. So how do you think about it? So very much connected to what you said, I think of the concept of God. I'm not going to answer the question about God so directly, but the concept of God is like a, it's like a diamond with a thousand faces. That is to say, we talk in lots of different ways about this, and we worship in lots of different ways, and we rely in lots of different ways. So in one sense, God, God is... Um, at times plays the role for us of uh, the ideal form of human excellences. At times, we speak about God as if it was kind of a spirit of things, as if the universe was a body and had a spirit. Um, there were just lots of ways we talk about God. And I, I mean, think, so your picture is a good one, I think. I mean, people say things like, God is love. Yeah. But, I mean, that doesn't quite work because love is an emotion right, an attitude, a relationship between people. God is supposed to be a, a being with, uh, that but, does things and listens to your prayers and reacts to them or ignores but them. But John, you just didn't hear what Howie just said, though. I mean, I think the point is, and I'm moved by the point, that the concept of God is in some sense inexhaustible, and we can only try out sort of partial metaphors and to try to get our head around it. I mean, if you read Kierkegaard, and faith. It's like that with him about faith. It's like, faith is this mystery, and I'll give you a way into it, but then that won't work maybe for some, and I'll give you another way, and I'll give you another way. And trying to say what God is, to reduce him to words and properties might be... If, if you're trying to describe something by metaphor, you'll never get a metaphor that exhausts the reality of the thing. You'll always be approaching it. That's true. But some metaphors can just be wrong. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, uh, a man is to a woman like a bicycle is to a fish. Uh, well, maybe that's some a deep and correct <laughs> But to say, you know... Can I try something? Yeah, try something. So I had a student who said to me, if you don't have a doctrinal picture, you don't have a sense of what you're talking about when you talk about God, how can you pray? And I said, you know, I really get that because I've been there. But I, for me, it works differently. When prayer works, when there's a sense of contact and power, um, it's amazing. It doesn't always work, but it's amazing when it works. And then if afterwards you say to me, okay, tell me who the other guy was on the other side of the relationship, I don't have a lot. I'm sort of speechless. Let's take some more questions from a live audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jim Harson. I live in Palo Alto. I, I'm just wondering if you're comfortable with the notion that uh, your awe seems very similar to aesthetic experiences, and would you draw some distinction uh, between those? Uh, when I read you and when I listen to you, it sounds to me like Plato's cave with the door shut. And so what, uh, what we have is the puppet show, and there are different 
puppets and I can be in awe and, and some of them, are you comfortable with the notion of not having access outside Plato's cave? I'm not sure about the cave. I have to think about the analogy, but I, I can address the first part. Um, there's a line in my fa one of my favorite Woody Allen movies, Crimes and Misdemeanors, in which someone says of a very religious man, his faith, you can't argue with him, it's not about logic, his faith is like an ear for music or the talent to draw. And that line has meant, over the years, has meant a lot to me. Um, there's a kind of natural responsiveness in us that the religions work on and develop and people get better at it and into it in a way that you deal with music in, in that sort of way. Um, so that's a theme to follow up. I mean, that's one kind of idea I'm interested in. Let me just say one more thing. Um, when I first started thinking about this, I gave a talk at the APA and I had a couple of commentators who were heavy hitting Christians and they thought, okay. what you're talking about isn't religion, it's about aesthetics. It's about aesthetic awe, it's not religious awe. And then there was a young priest in the audience who was a Stanford student actually, who um, said to me, does it feel religious? So I said, yes. He said, probably is. Um, I kind of feel like there's a continuity. When you hear music or you see the Grand Canyon, it's both a kind of aesthetic experience and it has religious content, but, but or, Howie, or spiritual Howie, content. Or, Howie, yeah. look, you said something about prayer and you said you prayer and it works, but you wonder, you, Who's on the other side, right? I mean, you can have awe in the face of the Grand Canyon, and on the other side is the Grand Canyon. You can have <laughs> awe. Ah. You can have awe at the. Un I am awestruck by the universe. I am awestruck by the massiveness of it. I'm awestruck by evolution. I suspect that evolution, we will someday discover, has had a hundred billion billion chances to run throughout the galaxy and the universe, and it will have created every possible. And that just fills me with awe. But the only thing on the other side of that awe is the universe. I don't, I don't think I worship the universe, although I'm also, I don't worship it as a god. So I don't see how you get from the mere fact of awe at the multiplicity of things that are worthy of awe, I grant you, to, to religion. Unless it's sort of like pantheism or something like that. You, start, you don't get to Judaism or Christianity or Islam that way. Well, let me, let yeah, me yeah, make a please, suggestion. Please. I mean, because I want to get back to the, the, the language we use uh, of God. Yeah. But, so let's take something that's sort of religious, but we don't have too many feelings about. The, the muses in Greek and, and Roman mm -hmm. times. I think Erato was the muse of literature, maybe, poetry. I don't think there was a muse of philosophy, which doesn't speak well for us. But anyway, so people talked about the muse. They talked about Erato. Maybe they have temples to her, and, and maybe poets who were, uh, maybe Ovid on a bad day would pray to Arato. But this was really a personification of a lot of things they'd noticed about the literary uh, enterprise, that it depended on the inspiration of a sort you could imagine getting from some magical thing, that it came and went, and, and that it was very special, and so forth and so on. And did they believe in Erato? Well, in the sense that it kind of summed up in a personality all these different dimensions they'd noticed. But I suspect most of them wouldn't have thought that there was some, something in space and time or something somehow out of space and time that was a unity that made decisions and so forth. It was a way of interpreting experience uh, in a way that allowed certain rituals and attitudes like prayer and 
you know, I don't know, sacrificing young poets or whatever they did. Uh, now, is that your conception of what it's all about? A way of interpreting an experience we have imperfectly through the idea of a personification? I, first of all, I think what you're describing, the pagan culture, is genuinely religious. I think it really is genuinely religious. And I think the connections between our modern-day religious lives and paganism are closer than we give credit for. Um, it's interesting why the Bible is so upset about what it calls avodah zarah, which means, I don't know, translated as idolatry, but it means foreign worship or something like this. Maybe because the people who are into such things represented a kind of immoral, horrible culture. It may have a lot to do with that. So I don't, I don't know. I think this is, a, a, I think, a great topic for discussion to think about um, ancient religions. And before, I mean, it's like Greek religion before the sophist raised the question, is that really true? Right? Mm -hmm. Was that a good move or not? So I, think, <laughs> so I think about the Israelite religion, Israelite religion in the Old Testament as the mother of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, coming into contact with Greek philosophical thought. And then all of a sudden, we're asking those questions. Right. Which of these things is true? Is it really true? Is it a parable? What's going on here? And then belief becomes the big thing. So, so that religion gets to be thought of as a picture of the world, a kind of metaphysical picture that needs epistemology to support it. And then it goes crazy for so me. So you, you want to go back to the roots of this Judaic <laughs> To the religion. extent you can. Right, mm -hmm. to the extent that you can. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. This time we're talking about faith and reason with Howie Wettstein, author of The Significance of Religious Experience. Evil is a central problem for the believing Christian, Jew, or Muslim. If a loving God is in charge, how come there's so much misery and injustice in the world? Does religion without belief, religion as an interpretation of feelings of awe, solve this problem or just evade it? We're coming to you from the Stanford campus, part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. We'll take more questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Welcome information, how not to feed your cat. Say goodbye to reason, yeah, there's an app for that. Never leave your home again, there's an app for that. There's an app for that. Download this, there's an app for that. Thanks to our musical guests, the Playtones. This is Philosophy Talk, and I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Howard Wettstein from the UC Riverside, author of The Significance of Religious Experience. And we're talking about faith, reason, and the art of living. And we've got some more questions from our live audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Thank you. My name is Peter. Uh, I live in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, and I wanted to ask a question um, to all three of you professors. Um, but particular, our guest professor. When someone asks a question on the street to someone, friend, or whatever, and says, are you religious, or are you spiritual, or are you a God believer? One, do you think there's a distinction between those, or among those three? And two, whether you do or you don't, do you think there should be? And what would that be? Maybe it doesn't mean anything much different when people ask those questions. You can put it this way or that way, and it really doesn't make much difference. Um, they want to know if you know, you're a churchgoer or 
even if you're not, whether um, there's ever a moment of prayer or religious reflection. I don't think those questions discriminate those, those fine points in a, well, in a way. I think, I think that if you actually probe most people about the real content of their religiosity, and I think there's lots of religiosity, people who won't say I'm a Jew or a Christian or a Catholic, or, they just believe in something or other. I actually think most people are kind of pantheist. I actually think that's probably the, uh, the, the modal religion of most human beings, a kind of pantheism. And they don't really distinguish that, I, I don't think, from, you know, belief in a supernatural being from just awe at the earth and some matters of spirit. I know lots of people who say, well, I'm spiritual even though I don't belong to any organized religion. Don't you think there's some distinction that people are getting at there? Well, I, I, think, I think spiritual is a little bit different than the other questions. I think a, you can be very spiritual and, and be an atheist because it's, it's, it's a matter of which questions bother you, which questions nag at you, what you worry about. Uh, Kierkegaard thinks that you'll be miserable if you don't believe in God. Well, he's wrong. Lots of people don't believe in God. They're not miserable. The ones who are miserable even though they don't believe in, because they don't believe in God, they're, they're spiritual. They're, they, they approach the universe with a certain spiritual demands, and if they fall short, then but, they but feel let, bad. Let's put the question to Howie this way. So you came back to Judaism, and it sounds from reading your book like you're very immersed in the mm -hmm. sort of life world, as mm -hmm. it were, of Jewish religiosity. Yes. Not just the cultural world of mm -hmm. being a Jew, but the life world of Jew, Jewish religiosity. I mean, do you... That's different from what I was saying before. Pantheism was, has no kind of thick spiritual history or practice. I mean, do you think it matters? I mean, in general, that, you, that when you become religious, you attach yourself to a thick practice with history and ritual and doctrines, even if you don't think the doctrines are, you know, uh, paramount. I mean, <laughs> you know, Santiana, who do, people don't study much anymore, I think is a really deep and interesting character, maybe especially about religion. It's George Santiago, George Santiago was a age. professor at Harvard, wrote a lot of books, the turn of the century, contemporary of William James. At one point he says that, think of religion, religions in the plural, as languages for the expression of spirituality. And he says, you know, no, no language is better than any other. He didn't know Hebrew. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, no language is better than any other, but try to speak without one. Right. So I think there are different idioms. And these, I mean, the three Abrahamic religions seem to me cousins in a way. They were overlapping. They emphasize different pieces of the same. But that makes it kind of puzzling, doesn't it? So Catholicism, which is not the religion in which I was raised. I was raised the Baptist, but I went off to Notre Dame and encountered all these amazing Catholics. And I right. immersed myself in Catholic thought for four years. Mm -hmm. you know? But Catholicism says the one true religion. Yes, right. they all say I, that. They all say that. They all believe so. But you sound like you think. You sound more like my friend, the Unitarian Universalist, who says, "Let them all no. fight." Well, I, uh, except you have this thick, the thick connection e, to a particular e, tradition. Yeah, I I heard a rabbi give a speech in which he said, "Not only are we the only one, but they know we're right." <laughs> and I thought, I used to teach at Notre Dame. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I think there are connections, but but. Um, you know, this is the life I lead. This is my language. I was giving a lecture at a Palestinian university, Al-Quds, in East Jerusalem, and some kids said in a kind of aggressive mode, if you're so interested in religion, why don't you know anything about Islam? 
So I said, you know, I quoted the Santayana, and I said, you know, this is my native language. It speaks to me and for me. It's the way I do it, and it really sings. Yeah, one of the really compelling chapters in your book is, is called uh, what the, the Travails of God. The, the God Struggles. God Struggles, right, uh, about the problem of evil. And I want to ask you about that. Uh, I'll start with a little personal history. I, I accepted at a revival meeting, I accepted when I was about 10 years old, Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. And as a result, I started getting Bible lessons in the mail. So I started reading the Bible. It was very surprising. Uh, God tells the Israelites to kill all the people living in Canaan. He plays cruel jokes on Job. He comes across as angry, petulant, and insecure. But I pursued it, so I went on to read some theology. But God comes off even worse, if that's possible. A perfect being who could therefore have created any world he chose. But he chose the one with the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide, just to mention a couple of things. So I left religion behind and haven't been back. So, does your way of thinking give us a better way of dealing with what you call God's struggles? That is basically the problem of evil. How can you help me with that? Um, I get, I, I, there was a conference at Notre Dame in which they were addressing those parts of the Hebrew Bible that are pretty awful. But <laughs> God tells the Israelites to destroy the inhabitants of the land and seize the land and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a fight between the Christians and the atheists in the usual kinds of ways, a lot of theodicy. That you is, mean at Notre Dame, at the conference? Yeah. yeah. And then they <laughs> let me go last. And uh, I said, I think I want to make the problem worse before we make it better, which is, it's not just the question of how God treats his enemies, right? Look at how he treats his beloved, Job and Abraham. And... How, what to say is the final word about it is another kind of question. But there are some first words that I think are really important. One of them is never to lose our moral intuitions and to tell some cute story that, you know, in philosophy, when somebody advances a theory and somebody asks a great question, the philosopher, if he's smart enough, or she is, has cute things to say, and we often feel like, wait a minute, that question didn't get what it deserved. This question deserves a lot. I mean, God in the Bible does some awful things, and that needs to be, right? I mean, I... But, but now, but I, on, I, on, on your view, these stories are interpretations of something awesome. Powerful. Yeah, something wonderful and powerful. So can the awesome be something so, so horrible? Think, think wait, 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 You said he does some awful things. Yeah. Not only does he do some awful things, he's got an awful personality. He's petulant and jealous and... All this needy. I would rather say he's complicated. In the richness, <laughs> of, in the richness of English, awe and awful have a yeah. lot in common. <laughs> yeah. Is that true in Hebrew? Don't know. Um, I don't look to religion to provide a solution to these problems because I think if it's a solution, it's a bad idea. I mean, the world is exquisite and amazing and horrible, and that's all true. And that has to be kind of the baseline for me, right? The question is, where does God come into all this? Well, if you think he's perfect in the ways that we've been trained to think, that's one set of problems. I don't think that. But nevertheless, he's supposed to be super good and caring. And I don't know, think about, for example, chapter 18. Where you mentioned it, Sodom in Hebrew, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Where God says, how can I do this without consulting my beloved Abraham, right? And Abraham argues with him forcefully. And 
you know, says things like, uh, God, heaven forbid that the judge of all the earth should do such awful things. And kind of, he could have been zapped at any moment. It was a kind of very brave moment. And God backs off. That's kind of interesting. So I had the feeling when I wrote that chapter that maybe we're supposed to have that feeling about Job. We're supposed to have the feeling like, um, how could this happen? Maybe that's the moral lesson in a certain way. How we see, this is why the Greeks started theologizing, right? Because all this stuff doesn't go together. You can't just rest with the awe, especially if this guy is supposed to guide your life and justify. You've got to figure out what the heck is going on with all this. And philosophy gets going, and you get these systems of theology and metaphysics, and it all becomes such a mess, which leads me to say, oh, just don't start with that stuff. I mean, just don't start with that stuff. Suppose it's, I ask kind of a local question, like, here's a guy can that I just says... Say one thing about this? Well, one okay. thing. I, so I, I have a friend who says something like, I don't expect answers, but when something awful happens, if I can feel God's hand on my shoulder, that's something important. But this is a guy who yeah. says, look, when, when you're uh, killing those people, uh, <laughs> the ones who just moved in there, you can let them go because they got someplace else to go. But the ones who've lived there their whole lives and their father's yeah. lives and their grandfather's lives, you got to kill them dead because they're really yeah. going to put up a this fight. This is awfulness. And yeah. then the same guy says, oh, by the way, don't, don't covet thy neighbor's wife. Now, why should I take, take this man seriously as a, as a moral authority when he's so vile? So this is your last pitch for God, okay? <laughs> yeah. Make your last pitch. Rumi, the famous Muslim poet, says that uh, <laughs> silence is God's natural language. All the rest is bad translation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on that note, our guest has been Howard Wednesday from the UC Riverside. He's author of The Significance of Religious Experience. Howard, thanks so much Thank for you, joining man. us. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. Really a pleasure. <laughs> So, John, what's your, what, are you, what are you thinking today? What's your last thought? What's my last thought? Howie's a wonderful guest and a wonderful guy, but uh, I'm still kind of skeptical. Yeah, you know, I like the stuff about awe. I do think awe is a great, great attitude to have. Awe and reverence for the things of the universe. But I, I, I don't think that can be the, the, uh, just the soul stuff or even... A adequate foundation for religion. See, and my own view is what we ought to be in awe of isn't the whole universe and not some dubious God, but just the earth. The earth is the source of everything that makes human life possible and valuable as well as difficult. So if we're going to hold something in awe, it ought to be something that if we held it in awe, we might be nicer to it. Well, good. So I that's we, my candidate. Okay, we should hold the earth in awe and we should hold uh, the universe in awe and the sun and this conversation in awe, which will continue on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter and you can find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. Now we turn to that faithful voice of reasonable speed, Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, when I was three or so, the Blando boys who lived up right across the alley from us told me there was a bear in the lilac bush behind their house. When I expressed doubt, Chucky Blando, the oldest of the three Blando boys, walked behind the bush away from my view. Immediately, the bush rustled and I heard a low-pitched growling. I was convinced. I dashed home on my little stubby legs to tell my mother there was a bear in the alley. 
That's not a bear, my poor mother sighed. That's the Blando boys. Now, one could say that my mother was cynical and had no faith, or he could say that I was naive and easily led. And in truth, there was no bear. I can admit that now. But it did come to pass that any time there was trickery, flummery, con games, bald-faced lies, and the ilk, my mother's shorthand warning was always, that's just the Blando boys. Just goes to show you how difficult it is sometimes to apply reason to a situation. When Chucky Blando told me there was a bear, I believed him. Why would he lie about something like that? That bears had not been previously discovered in small-town alley lilac bushes was no argument. But when my mother said, that's just the Blando boys, it came as a revelation. Of course the Blando boys would lie to me. Duh, that's what they do. Thank goodness for mom. Then, in junior high, I came home for lunch one day in my gangly little legs and told her that Governor Pat Brown of California was a communist. He's not a communist, my poor mother sighed. He's a Democrat. She asked where I'd heard this, from Mr. Johnson, my health teacher, in my third period health class. Yes, instead of teaching us health, he was issuing dire warnings, including one that the world would run out of oil by the year 1970. Implicit in my mother's sigh was this. Mr. Johnson, a teacher of health to junior high school kids in North Dakota, knows nothing about California politics, and one should take his opinions, therefore, with a grain of salt. So now there are two schools of misinformation, the Blando boys, who just lied for laughs, and the Mr. Johnson, who probably didn't even think he was lying, and certainly didn't have a sense of humor. Probably by now, the Blando boys have been politically corrected out of existence, and the Mr. Johnson has become what we now call the Tea Party. But they all go to show that a little bit of faith can be a bad thing, especially if there's no mom around to set you straight. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is the presentation of Ben Manella Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Music from Merle Kessler and Joshua Raul Brody, The Playtones. Special thanks to Liz Frith, Azine Masudi. Thanks also to Dan Brandon, Caitlin Esch, Crystal Nickerson, and James Hanley. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our Director of Research. Our Director of Marketing is Dave Millar, and Corolla Kreitmar is our Performance Consultant. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University, from the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and from the members of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Thank you.